And let's uh, go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you today, Lord, for this opportunity to stand before your people and stand in this place. Lord, for all of us to stand before you and God just to come to you and say, Lord, please, sir, speak to us today. Speak to our hearts. Take your word. Open it. Open our minds to what it's saying. Lord, give us a willingness to respond to the things that we see so that we can be in step with what your will is and what the Holy Spirit wants done and how he can empower us at this moment in time, in history, and in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. and. You know, comparisons are always dangerous. I heard about a man, he was absolutely a, a terrible person, wicked sinner. I mean, he was a drunk. Uh, you know, he got the new uh, Kansas NFL uh, gambling app, and uh, so uh, he, he gambled away the family's rent money. Uh, he was an adulterer. He was a profane speaker. And he had a brother, and that brother was nearly as bad as him. And so when the man died, his uh, brother came to the preacher and said, you know, I'd, I'd like you to do my brother's funeral. And the pastor said, well, sure, I'd, I'd be happy to do it, glad to do it. But the brother said, now there's just one thing, preacher, somewhere in the funeral, I want you to call my brother a saint. Pastor said, you know, I really, I really just can't do that. Man said, well, now listen, if you will do it, I have $500,000. I'll put in the building program. I'll solve, solve all your problems right there. Pastor said, well, okay, I'll pray about it. Day came for the funeral, and there was that man laying there in the casket, and the preacher looked down in the casket, and he said, you know, I want you to know the man in this casket. He was a drunkard. He was a gambler. He was an adulterer. He was very profane. I mean, you all know this. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) So comparisons can be dangerous. And yet our whole worship study today is based on a comparison of two people. And before we get to looking at them, I want to give you some spiritual backstory to their story. So you will understand, and this is our thesis for today's study, that before you can represent Jesus or imitate Christ, you have to worship by learning from his words. So there is a moral spiritual element in connection with worship and with the apprehension of God's absolute truth. So in the efficiency of divinity, God has desired to express this on the smallest unit possible. That means he works first in your individual life. That means he works first in your individual Bible reading, your discipleship, your one-on-one, your time in the word, and in your heart. And therefore, this is worship word number one. If you refuse to let God work in you on a personal level with your Bible, then you prevent him from working anyplace else in your life. And that is so sad. I mean, you want to see God at work on your job? Well, then he's got to be at work in your heart by worship in the word. You want to see God at work in your family? Then he needs to be at work in your heart by worship in the word. You want to see God at work in your life? Well, he has to be at work in your heart by worship in the word. And so when we ask the question, what is wrong with our city? I mean, the homicide rate, what is wrong with our society? The problem is not that sinners sin. Sinners have always sinned. 
The, the problem is that the saints have nothing going on with God so that they can save the sinners and rescue society. Hello, somebody. So worship has to start on the personal level. I think that means that the challenge for us has to be PBS, personal Bible study, based on EBE, simple English Bible exegesis, with PPT, personal prayer time, and GPPO, getting your personal praise on. So let's start at the right spot today. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. Let me hit you with a definition. Personal worship is a way that God makes himself central to the life of a church, whereby the members of that body get a divine frame of reference for their lives, and they get that out of their individual responses to God's word, which is preached and taught and taught to the kids and and everything else. So if you understand the inseparable connection between God and the words of God, and therefore between worship and the word of God, then you will be in the context of personal worship, and it will be in that context that the children who live in your house get their correct divine worldview. And that explains a whole lot right there as to the state of our churches today and the state of our families. So the gang problem we experience in Kansas City, that's not, first of all, an issue of delinquent kids, immigrants, and drug running. It is, first of all, an issue of delinquent parents. Hello, somebody. And therefore, those children choose a new family structure, and that new family structure gives them a demonic frame of reference instead of a divine one, because they have not seen God being central in any adult's life that they know. So the best a lost man can do on a good day is hire more police. And that attacks the symptom, but that does not address the disease. And my point is, the disease that personal worship addresses, among others, the disease that it addresses is loss of value, loss of belonging, and loss of fathering. I mean, we just sang a song that said, no other gods can be called father. Why can we call God our father? Because when you get saved, he generated you. It was a regeneration. You were born the first time into Adam's family. That's cursed. You were born with a sin nature. When you, when you trust Jesus for eternal life, you get the divine nature. You are born again. That is why we can call God Father. And so this is worship word number two. Personal worship puts the creature in proper relationship to the creator so that when God is adored, the value of his child is restored. And here in a moment, I'm going to tie a couple of things together, I think. Um, I was just uh, doing this off the top, but I, you know, it just occurs to me that uh, in terms of creature, creator, well, you kind of have to believe in creation. So if you don't believe in creation, if you're an evolutionist, then this doesn't even make sense to you. And the same thing is true when we talk about different Bibles and the Bible you're going to use to get God's words and biblical authority and what it means and how God's going to speak to you. So in our society, we pay a high price If we do not restore personal worship, we reap what we sow, and that is the consequences we are now living in, because personal worship is what empowers personal values. You know, some of us are old enough, we were in school long enough ago, we say, how did all this change? 
How has all this changed, even in just the last few years, even in just the last couple of decades, even, even, in, even since the pandemic, how has all this changed? Will you forget, we've gotten further and further and further and further away from any idea of absolute truth, of the Bible actually being God's true words for us today. We've, and the further you get, the worse it's going to get. And pretty soon the, the incline gets steeper as you go along, and that's why. And you know, nobody operates in a vacuum without outside influence and direction. And the model they see, the direction they get, it may be right or wrong, but it's real to them. And so we need to restore worship as the queen of the virtues. And the church is supposed to do that. And biblical discipleship, which we have here, you can sign up for, it does that. And we are to be operating on biblical values and transferring that system of truth to everyone who attends here and hears the word of God, whether here in the service or whether Harvest Kids and our children's, children's groups. So how do you worship on a personal level? Well, you're asking good questions this morning. Look at uh, worship word number three. You worship by studying God's word through simple English Bible exegesis so that you can apply God's truth in fulfillment of God's task. Now, that automatically means something right there because outside of the King James Bible, you really can't do English Bible exegesis with any of the other translations. And, you know, there are, there are translations out there. Many of them are great paraphrases except for what they leave out, except for their obvious corruptions based on the wrong manuscripts. They're, they're okay paraphrases. but you can't do English Bible exegesis with that. Yeah, okay, so then you don't have God's words. And then truth and task have to go together. So you can't be Sunday one and done. You got to be involved someplace. Got to get discipled, be discipling. You got to, you know, you're a servant somewhere in order to make the reality relevant and put your worship into action. And after you see how relevant Bible truth is, worship is your submission to it and your application of it on a personal level. So this is worship word number four. You may have a lot of weaknesses, but whatever strengths you possess, whatever strengths you have will be there because of personal application of Bible principles as your ultimate act of worship. And if not, even if you say, well, you know, I can be strong without that. Okay, you're strong. You may be strong, but only a self-righteous, sinful sense. Not one God's gonna accept. Hey, you know, you can pray and you can praise. But if, if, if your only really literal avenue of worship is by taking truth to task, meaning your personal application of the Bible principles that you see. So spiritual maturity does not just happen, just like children do not raise themselves. And the reality, and this is our fifth worship word, is that, is that what you do personally in your worship relationship affects materially what you become in this life. So we've got to teach truth both by information, that's precept, and by function, that's practice. And it has to be done as your literal act of worship. So what you tell someone is true in principle whether you disciple them or it's your child or it's someone else you're trying to influence, 
has to be true in your practice as a living sacrifice of those words. So, so I'm, well, all I'm saying is, let's take scripture back from the scholars today and let's, let's make the Bible a living book again. And it will not live for us if we do not worship. And we cannot worship if it does not live. And so in a day of distractions, how do we keep focused on worship? How are we going to stop fretting and, and showing up on Sunday like we are something that we're not? Now you're looking at me all holy like, you know, your halo is on high, it's about to blind me. And, uh, you know, even if you're thinking of the person next to you, just keep looking straight up here. They'll never know you're thinking about them. But if you are convinced about the necessity of personal worship to rescue you from the failure of a lukewarm life, then what is the most important element to draw out of you what God wants to receive from you so that what comes out of you is really what is in you and not just a front for people who are watching you? To answer those questions, I want us to turn to a familiar story of two women in love with the same man. Two women who dared to devote their lives to a higher cause and the will of God, and yet their approach to fulfilling his mission is so dissimilar. And really, those of us who are born again, we're all in love with that same man. And in some senses, at times, there may even be a jealousy or a holy rivalry in the way that we approach what we do for Jesus. Mary and Martha are often contrasted as if you have to make a choice. Well, this is worship word number six. It is clear that what Jesus wants from each of us is to imitate Mary in our worship and Martha in our work. And I would further suggest that if your worship is not anchored at the feet of God's word, then it's defective. And if your study of the Bible does not result in worship, then your life will malfunction. And that hits back at the issue of having the right Bible, because if you don't view your Bible like you view Jesus, you won't get out of it what you need to have. So Jesus wants to teach us about the most intimate aspects of the function of our worship, which is the balance of our personal walk in the word and our worship of God. When he does that, he chooses two women. He doesn't take the relationship like uh, between uh, James and John. Uh, he does not take the relationship between Peter and Paul. He takes two women who are loved by the same master, according to John 11:5. Two individuals who are women, who are sisters, and yet they're in competition in some respects for the, for the Lord's attention. And so two women who work for him, but as they work, they are still conscious of his gay gaze, and they are also still desirous of his approval. How do you maintain a balance between the letter and the spirit, between head knowledge and heart affection between the facade and the reality, or what is put on for show and what is really go. God did not choose Matthew and Thomas to teach us this. He chooses two women. So let's join Jesus in Luke chapter 10, moving with his men called apostles. In verse 1, he sends out 70 men a-preaching on the 12th day of Christmas, in verse 17, they return, and in verse 38, 
the disciples are welcomed into a certain home to get some downtime for food and for fellowship. Look at verse 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. So the certain village in which they live is Bethany, according to John 11, verse 1. That's about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Some of you have been there uh, with us, uh, Lord willing, uh, and, and uh, Jesus gives us time. We'll take another Living Faith Bible Institute trip. We'll, we'll go back to Israel again. Martha, I mean, it's her house, right? That's what it told us. So Martha's the head chef. Uh, But she has a sister whom she expects to be the sous chef. Verse 39. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet. Why? Because she wanted to hear his word. So Martha, I don't know, Martha's kind of the jock and Mary's the geek. I I don't know. And, And to host a crowd like that, I mean, there's some preparation that has to take place. Caterers got to be contacted. House got to be swept. Guests have to be attended to. Somebody has to serve them sweet tea. So what I want us to look at and lock onto is verse 40. But Martha was cumbered about much serving. Martha was encumbered, as we would say. She was preoccupied by all the preparations, and she was distracted. She's overloaded, so much so that that the word means she's dragging stuff around. So there are a couple of issues at stake here, so I'd I'd like us to clarify our topic. First letter A, what, what is Martha distracted from? Well, the answer is she's distracted from truth that she could hear while sitting at Jesus' feet. So Mary is in the front row in a worship position in order to listen to his teaching. So you know she wasn't Baptist. No Baptist ever sits in the front row. And so I don't know, she's Presbyterian or something, but Martha is out in the kitchen getting getting the hors d'oeuvres. Second, what was Martha encumbered by? Well, the answer is all the preparations. I mean, the things that surround so much serving... Somebody had to go to the market and buy it fresh, and somebody had to cook it up all at once, and somebody had to run to get the water because the only running water was in the stream. And you know, those fish don't fry themselves, you know. So the problem is stated thusly. She is carrying around a burden, and that problem is not that she is serving because Jesus doesn't tell her to stop. The problem is she carried that burden and did not worship at her work. Now, let me keep it real. This is reality preaching today. I think last last Sunday we were in Daniel. I talked about it being hard preaching. And, you know, and I like hard preaching. I like reality preaching. I like, uh, you know, whenever I go to a church, I hear somebody else preach. I, I like it when it is hammer and anvil preaching. Because even though I feel beat up, I leave formed. Okay, so if it's hammer and anvil preaching, it is reforming me. And sometimes the symptom of your worship life not being right is burnout. And sometimes the symptom of your worship life not being right is conflict with others or conflict in ministry. And sometimes it is succumbing to temptation. And the problem is no prayer, no praise, no worship. So I have to ask this, 
How good are you at keeping the worship factor up? I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about air day. Yeah, I mean, you got to be good at that in order to avoid being encumbered with all the things that challenge our fellowship and our ministry at this moment. There's only one, you know, we only have church once or twice a week. There's only Sunday school once a week, and not even that for every uh, one of our adult classes. We don't have enough space. And we only have discipleship too, and, and, and Bible Institute once a week, and Holy Spirit is not always speaking to your heart like he is today and like he does in our services. And so this is worship word number seven. The way to apply truth worshipfully is to learn while you listen and then go out and live what you learned. So there's always value simply to learning, even if you cannot apply it at the time. However, this does call into question learning, which is not applicable. So sometimes we are Martha's in the word and not just Martha's in the kitchen. And we may be in the words, but we're still not at the feet of Jesus. How do I know? Here's your sign. Verse 40, Martha came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care? I mean, she sounds like the disciples who were in the boat. Carest thou not that we perish? Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Now, you don't need to even answer that. I know you care. And since you care, here's what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna to tell her to come, come and help me back here because you care. I mean, who can deny her experience? The reality is that, you know, it's hot in the kitchen. It's not Hell's Kitchen, but it's hot kitchen. And she's sweating and her mascara is running and beans are boiling over and the fish fry started a grease fire and bread's about to burn. And then it dawns on her. Reason I am perspiring like a pig is because my sister is sitting on her keister. I think I'll ask Jesus to go kick her keister and she can just kiss my keister if she don't like it. Oh, let me, borrow, let me borrow the screen of your anointed imagination. I can see it now. She takes that dinner towel. She throws it down on the counter. She turns around, looks out in the den. She sees her sister and she gives her the eyebrows. Doesn't give her the evil eye. That's kind of a demonic thing. But she gives her the evil eyebrows. And, and Mary is supposed to be setting the table. Instead, she is sitting in the front row, legs crossed, fork, spoons, and napkins in a pile. Uh, and, and she's taking the place of some man that could have sat in that spot. Now, this is a great lesson in worship because Jesus is trying to rescue you from the tyranny of selfishness, even scripture selfishness, because you, by definition, you show worship by the combination of truth and works. Wait, you worship in spirit and in truth. But truth always takes you to a task. So you show worship by work. Now, in the Old Testament, that meant building an altar and, and making a blood sacrifice or taking an animal and bringing it as a blood sacrifice to the temple. Uh, in the New Testament, works of worship are prayer and praise and giving. But, you know, uh, in terms of your daily life, that's not very tangible. So if it is sterile truth and you do not get involved 
and you do not let God involve himself in your life on a daily basis, then you really don't worship and there cannot be fruit if there's no worship. So Mary knew there was a time to act. And the time to act is when Jesus is not bringing the word. If Jesus is in the house, then worship him. And he's preaching, worship him through his word. And, and if Jesus is busy, then you be busy too. So Mary, I mean, when you ever see Mary in the gospel, she is constantly at Jesus' feet in a worship position. She falls at his feet. John eleven thirty two. she anoints his feet, John 12, 3. Now she is sitting at his feet because she was quicker than any of the other apostles who took his teaching for granted. Does Jesus care when your life is at the mercy of history, policy, conspiracy, and outside circumstances. Does Jesus care when so many people are depending on you? Does Jesus care when everything that hits a fan falls on your shoulders? Well, let me settle you down. This is worship word number eight. Do not blame God for the distractions and dysfunctions in your life if worship has not been your priority. That day, that time, that moment, I'm just saying you need to be careful what you blame God for. Martha is sweating it out, but Martha's problem is her lack of personal worship. And Mary's virtue is her devotion to truth and to Jesus' words as an expression of her worship. And I would to God I could make you feel that today. The issue is not, doesn't your disciple care? The issue is not, doesn't your spouse care? The issue is not, don't I care? Doesn't this church care? Doesn't Jesus care? The issue is your worship of him because in worship, you start to see the truly needful things in life. Mary chose the good part and that good part is worship under the word, which means as our final worship word, You cannot have balance if you do not have worship. Have you prioritized prayer, praise, and worship in the word? You know, many of the things you're going through are not God's will. And you put it on him because you're going through him as if it, as you blame him, as if why are God you allowing this? You know, this must be your will for me. And it's not his will. You put it on him because it's related to your own lack of personal relationship with him through his words. Watch, watch verse 41. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Girl, look at all the stuff on your mind. You are carried away with cornbread and fried chicken and sweet potatoes and greens and making my mouth water, but you want to you wanna do something for me, but you know what? You're not spending time with me. You're not spending time under my words. Listen, Marf, I will order out for pizza if you'll just sit here with us. And you know what Jesus is telling Martha? He's saying, change your menu because God's words are your real nourishment. I mean, if you want to be nurtured, then add admonishment from the word of God to your menu. And this is so important, especially with all those who have turned back, all those that we know of who have fallen away from the word. 
How can we say as Christians, we want to be close to the Lord, but yet in our personal life, in our personal walk, there is no place for the right Bible in our worship. How how can we say that if we don't even care about having the right Bible? I mean, God wants to serve you manna, and you are eating chitlins and crawdads. And I, you know, some people like that, I know, but I'm just saying, why have Jesus in your life if you are not paying close attention, if you are not doing a close reading of the text of his words from a worship position to that word? And you know, in a lot of Bibles, you know, are, are okay paraphrases, but there's no modern translation you can actually do an English Bible exegesis of. And part of this, and you say, Alan, well, you know, uh, wh- why is that? Wh- how come that is the case? What is, what is the deal about, you know, biblical authority as you talk about it here? Well, it's the same thing, as, same difference as between creation and evolution, right? I mean, I'm, I, I believe in creation. I can look at the same evidence some other person can look at, even a scientist. And we're both looking at the same evidence. We t- come to totally different conclusions. Why? Because they view it skeptically and I view it believingly. And, and you know, and I just, I mean, I don't even have to be scientific about it. If I, at least I'm going to be scientific enough to actually look at the data. So, okay, uh, back when I was a kid and they were teaching evolution, they said that cows came from whales. Is that what they teach you today? Somehow some cow, some, some whale climbed up on the shore and grew legs. Uh, okay, if you want to say that, that's fine, but you show me where in the fossil record there are all the transitional forms of the blowhole moving from the top of his head and turning into a snout. It ain't there, baby Baba. You just invented that. That's called mythology. And whenever I do look, what I find is like the Cambrian explosion. It's like every, every uh, species just appears. It's just there. It's like God did it. And it just shows up and there it is. And yeah, there's, you know, on micro level, there's changes from this to that. Okay, microevolution. There's not the type changes you say there would be if there were not a creator. And same thing is true about your Bible. Because God gave us his word. You know, here's the dealio. And I know that, you know, my uh, doctorate is not in, uh, uh, was not in uh, New Testament studies. It was not in biblical studies, but my other two degrees were. And so I know enough to know this. What had happened was, they, scholars today want to reconstruct a lost original. They say God lost the original. Only as smart people, many of them unsaved, can reconstruct it for you. I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, I don't think God preserved his word in the original because it was used and used up and it's gone. So what the Holy Spirit did was continue to preserve the word through the manuscripts that were copied from that. And as it went on and on, and I'm sorry, I just don't buy into the idea that you discovered something in, 18, in the 1830s that because it's older, it's better. No, it is so corrupt. You're asking me to give up something God gave us So, okay, in English, we get it in 1611 for 270 years. It was God's words in English. If it's not still today, we don't have them. I mean, it was another 100 years before they came out with a new King James. That's 370 years. 
So, so why, why say you're going to worship Jesus? You don't even have his words to, to go along with. Jesus says, listen, Martha, cut out the kitchen because one translation dish is enough. And, and Mary's chosen it. Watch verse 42. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And what was given by inspiration was not an original. It was scripture, and we have that today. So, so what makes it so good is this. Once you have a King James Bible, those sound words can never be taken away unless you do not hold fast to the form in which you receive them, 2 Timothy 1.13. We received them and had it. It's all we had for 270 years. It can't, you know, it can't be taken away, but you can fall away, oh boo. So what Mary decided, me, I mean, we look at the same uh, evidence. Me and any other textual critic, we look at the exact same manuscript, exact same evidence. I look at it believingly. They look at it skeptically. So that is your choice who to believe. What Mary decided was to work up to a point. At that point, no matter what was left undone, it was Messiah time. It was Messiah time. She's going to have a cool one. She's going to drink of living water. She's going to leave the rest undone because after all, dinner was just a tool to get her close to God's word. Now watch, you say, but it was their culture for women to stay in the kitchen. You might even say, you know, the Bible would indicate, or you might use the word stronger than indicate, that she ought to be in the kitchen. You might even say if she were not a feminist, she would have stayed in the kitchen. You know, sometimes you got to break the rules just to be biblical. You know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes every now and then you got to do something radical just to show everybody who really the boss is. I mean, I guess because this this is Jesus approving this. So the question on the floor today is this. What is distracting you from truth and task and worship by God's word? No matter how good it is, no matter what service it is, no matter what your parents, peers, or professors might think, why are you encumbered and enveloped by that thing full of care and troubled? Truth and task are only balanced by worship. You know, after all, the meal's going to be gone in a few hours. You're going to be hungry again the next day. But what, what Mary is getting here is going to stick with her forever. Because no one can take from you what you have assimilated in discipleship. I mean, once you've eaten the word and you've actually assimilated it, man, nobody can take that. So your job is just part of what you do to lock your day into the Lord. And you lock it in by personal worship as you do your job. And your study, your schooling is just part of what you do to lock your day into the Lord. I mean, I wish every one of our students, every one of our high school, college, every one of our Harvest kids would would take that ideal out with them today. All your other relationships are just part of what you must do to sit at the feet of Jesus while he's speaking to you. Use all these things as tools to get his word activated in your life. And then you'll know when to leave other things alone so that they do not interfere with your relationship with him. Now, if it's not practical, it's not preaching. I mean, I ain't preaching, 
if I haven't made it practical. And this is reality preaching. How do you change your priorities to push worship to the front? Well, you're asking good questions today. Here are three simple things, and then we raise up out of here. Three things about taking worship to the limit. Number one, give God the first day of every week with Christ's body, with the church, with us every Sunday. Number two, give God the first dime of every dollar to fund your own ministry. When anything makes you give God the leftover part, you kill personal worship. And I agree, 10% is so insignificant. Nobody ever, nobody ever went bankrupt because they gave 10% to their church. You know, in the Old Testament, it had to come off the top as the first thing. Otherwise, it was not acceptable worship. Number three, give God the first part of every day in his word. And I know you don't have a lot of time, but you got as much time as I do, 168 hours in a week. How will you use your time, your tithe, and your talent differently during these last days of the church age? Now, let me build out number three by giving you some tips on how to structure worship by the word. Just two things. First, part of your daily schedule ought to be program time with God. As David says in Psalm 5, verse 3, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. Program time. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. And second, the rest of your schedule should be flex time with God. Psalm 38, 35, 28, and my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. In everything you do, inject God into your arena by personal worship, by taking the word and what you learned and applying it in life, by balancing work through worship and choosing the best good part so that you can let go of all the encumbering things. It is a good thing to start your day with God, interrupt your day with God, and conclude your day with God. Do that, and everything else will fall into place providentially. I mean, even if it's a bad thing, it'll work together for good because divine providence operates just like that when you worship. And, and it'll all be, it'll, it'll be good. It's all good, even if dinner consists of cold sandwiches and popsicles. Every head bowed, every eye closed. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Worship, come before the Father, yielded to the Spirit, and following his word. But have you received God's grace by faith so that you can worship him? You know, you cannot worship him in task until you worship him in truth, because he will not let you work your way to his salvation. He died on the cross for you. I mean, the only way that his grace is activated is by your faith in the finished work of Christ. And we call that truth the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus shed his blood because he was the only sacrifice God would accept in your place. Only his death could pay your debt, even if you die in your sins and go to hell forever. You never pay off. His holiness is infinite, your sins therefore infinite. Your, holy, your uh, suffering in hell would, could never pay off what you owe him. Only the death of Jesus did. Because he, he, only he has the righteousness that God will accept. 
So have you given yourself to him as your first act of worship? Jesus said, John chapter 6, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who hath sent me. Jesus said, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus said, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus said, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing, But wait, hold it. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Worship God in spirit and truth by his word. Will you just pray with me right now and say, God, today, Lord, I believe on Jesus for everlasting life. I believe him for what he's promising me right now. I believe, so I receive. Hear Jesus, I give you my life. God, make me born again right now. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you pray that today, come up and let us know while the praise team sings us out. I want to give you a copy of my book on next steps for new believers.